Welcome everyone to Mystery AI Hype Theater 3000, where we see catharsis in this age of AI hype. We find the worst of it and pop it with the sharpest needles we can find. Along the way, we learn to always read the footnotes, and each time we think we've reached peak AI hype, the summit of Bullshit Mountain, we discover there's worse to come. I'm Emily M. Bender, a professor of linguistics at the University of Washington. And I'm Alex Hanna, director of research for the Distributed AI Research Institute. This is episode 25, which we're recording on January 22nd, 2024. And it's time to talk about the workplace. If there's any universal anxiety about the so-called AI boom, it's that we're all going to lose our jobs as bosses adopt LLMs to do what we do, but for cheaper and, oh, by the way, also worse. The hypers would have us believe that GPTs are GPTs. Generative pre-trained transformers are general purpose technologies. They can do anything. No more work for us. We're coming for those claims today. And if I may add, much more effectively than ChatGPT is coming for our jobs or yours. All right, so we got a couple of our artifacts here for the main course. We're going to start, we decided, with the one from OpenAI, which is where that GPTs or GPTs title comes from. Mm -hmm. um, and then we've also got something from Goldman Sachs. And I've just pulled up the OpenAI um, uh, page here because it has the original date of this, which was March 17th, 2023. Mm -hmm. But if you go over to archive, um, the current version that's there is the version from August 22nd, 2023. Did they right. fix all the ridiculousness in this paper in between? Well, I suppose it could have been more ridiculous. I didn't look at the first version, but... <laughs> I'm guessing and, that they didn't. Yeah, it's probably yeah. just updating a few graphs or something of that nature. Typos, maybe. Um, but the other thing that I have to say about both of these artifacts is that there's so much nonsense here that I'm afraid that we're going to run out of the hour and there's going to be something even worse that we didn't get to. So just like disclaimer up front, just because we didn't talk about something in these papers doesn't mean we think it is at all reasonable. <laughs> yeah. And before getting into the papers, I also want to say that when both of these came out, they got a lot of press because these headlines are really catchy. Basically, the claim, first off, that GPTs are GPTs, that um, generated preterm transformers are general purpose technologies. And then the other one that we're going to look at today is a report from Golden, Goldman Sachs. It was actually quite hard to actually find this source material, while places like Forbes, the Financial Times, the Guardian, the Wall Street Journal, all the business press glommed onto this, even though the reports are pretty much as ridiculous as you'd expect. So well, let's let's just get into it. Yeah. All right. So we're starting with with the OpenAI one here. Um, and I, th I think I'm going to skip the abstract because I have to rant first about the first line in the introduction. So it starts like this. As shown in figure one, recent years, months, and weeks have seen remarkable progress in the field of generative AI and large language models, parentheses, LLMs. And I have to say, whenever I'm reviewing or reading something in this field, if this, if the motivation for the paper starts with Recently, there's been lots of progress or increased attention or whatever. It's just like, I do not want to read the rest of this. And mm -hmm. the inclusion of weeks in that made it even worse. So I thought, okay, what's figure one? Is it going to be some kind of a graph over time? Do you think there's a time axis in figure one, Alex? No, absolutely not. <laughs> there is not. So this figure one um, is uh, captioned exam results ordered by GPT 3.5 performance. So this is not progress over time. It is a collection of results of what happens when you run a multiple choice exam through these systems. Um, 
So anyway, yeah, that it, was just yeah, not yeah. off to a good start. Um, yeah. Abstract Tesseract saying that GPTs should be called gratuitous poppycock touters. And man, I, I think I like that. Any use of poppycock, like A plus in my book. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what they what they're doing in this paper is that they're effectively trying to make the argument that GPTs are these quote general purpose technologies. And the kind of frame of these papers, both this one and the Goldman Sachs paper, is that they're taking kind of a labor economic approach to this. So Emily's highlighting now um, where they say, to complement predictions of technology's impact on work and provide a framework for understanding the evolving landscape of language models and their associated technologies, we propose a news rubric for assessing LLM capabilities and their potential effects on jobs. And so what they do is they, this rubric, which is in appendix one, and we're going to spend a lot of time, by the way, uh, talking about methodology. Oh, hold on. Let me go back up. So go I can back? read. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is, sorry. Is, yeah. No. Uh, yeah. So um, what they do is that they, um, oop, is that they, oh, here it is. Oh, there's this root. So the, the sentence again says this rubric measures the overall exposure of tasks tasks to LLMs following the spirit of prior work on quantifying exposure to machine learning. And then they cite a few people, including a few labor uh, economists. Um, Bryn uh, Jolfson is a, is a very famous one. They say, uh, I know they also say um, Darren Asamoglu uh, and a few other people in this domain um, and David, David author. Um, so we define exposure as a proxy for potential economic impact without distinguishing between labor augmenting or labor displacing effects already kind of weird there. Um, but then, but then the last, <laughs> yeah, we employ, okay. This is the real kicker. We employ human annotators and GPT four itself as a classifier to apply this rubric to occupational data in the U S economy, primarily so sourced from the O star net database. Okay. And I, so first off, not only is it ridiculous that they asked GPT-4 on what types of jobs will be most exposed to automation, the human annotators that they used were only people working at OpenAI. Okay, so uh, yeah. anyway. Go, including including Emily, their contractors, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Emily. I mean, it's yes. ridiculous on the face of it, but like. Emily, go yeah. off. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So, so basically, the the and we scrolled past here, and I guess it keeps it comes later. They've got all of these like claims of like we found that um, our analysis indicates that approximately nineteen percent of jobs have at least fifty percent of their tasks exposed when considering blah blah blah, and it's like no, your analysis is nothing because you basically just said we're going to fabricate some data and then pretend that it means something and make some percents out of it. Like they literally mm -hmm. asked GPT-4 and they did their prompt engineering to get it to give them an answer. Um, you know, could, could an LLM, uh, and we can talk about what it is that they're asking for, but it's something like, does the LLM speed this up by a factor of two or not? Right. 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 Without it decreasing quality. But like GPT-4 does not have that information. It's not like they right. queried a database, right? Right. And the thing is interesting because I think this is, I mean, this is a problem. There's problems that are endemic with this kind of uh, forecasting that happens to, that has to do with automation and what labor economists do. Um, it's very 
qualitative in nature. And I'm not saying that to to ding qualitativeness, but it's ding, it's basically an assessment that is very um very subjective in its nature, but then it is given this veneer of of quantitativeness in the kind of graphs that they present. Now, this ONET methodology, I had a long conversation with a friend of mine from grad school, John Latner, shout out John Latner, uh, who is a economic sociologist. I'm like, John, this methodology seems really nonsensical. You know, if you're trying to assess this, is it typically the case that you make subjective assessments of exposure to automation as deemed by labor economists or some kind of other uh, you know, social matter, uh, social matter uh, expert, and he's like, "Well, yeah, it's famously hard to do this. You're you're trying to make kind of less bad predictions," and I'm like, "Okay, I understand this is hard, and you're trying to make estimations, but it seems like, you know, it seems quite pernicious to then make the people who are the assessments, the people working at OpenAI, and." the technology itself like what a, what a what a methodology design that just is just it's, absurd yeah. and and even if you had people who were qualified to make the judgments making the judgments there's other methodological problems here so mm -hmm. um i want to first of all i think we didn't actually read did we read the full title of the paper or did we just jump in and say uh, it's the open AI paper? I think we said GP, GPTs are GPTs. Are GPTs. That's yeah, enough of it. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, yeah. But they do say an early look at the labor market impact of potential of large language models. So that's what they're claiming to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've scrolled this down to the methods and data collection part here, skipping over their literature review. Um, and I, I noticed that, that Jeremy asked in the chat, hey, wait, is this another wall of metrics fallacy papers? Shout out to the episode that uh, he guessed it on. And no, we don't have a wall of metrics. We have one really bad metric in a couple of guises that is poorly calculated. So it's a different yeah. different kind of problem here. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of graphs. Actually, before we get into the methodology, I would love yeah. to go into the, the results because like what seems to okay. be the most exposed because it's it's sort of like, okay, um, and so if you go down, so there's, there's some, you know, Four there's some, results, yeah. so there's some smooth things and I'd love to go to the, like, the, there's this huge list. It's either in the appendix, um, of kind of like, what is the most exposed? Um, I think it's in the, I think it's in it's, appendix one, um, okay. of this, I don't have my notes in front of me. Um, I'll keep scrolling down. Yeah, I think uh, it's 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 like there's a very there's a very big um yeah this this one this, this is the one so this this is like um so this <laughs> for those of you who are listening what this looks like it kind of looks like an iceberg plot almost it's a it's a rotated horizontal plot that uh, looks like they used kind of a uh, it goes from very light to very dark and kind of a rainbow metric. And I love graphs like this because once you start reading this, there's a big what the fuck moment here. Wait, so uh, hold on. I was trying I was so, trying to rotate it so I could actually read it. Yeah, um, totally, totally fine. But, so you'll have to tell me what's there, Alex. So that's yeah, tiny so, and I okay. can't see. So can you zoom in? Because I also can't read this. Let's zoom into <laughs> the thing that's the most exposed. We're really getting to the nitty-gritty here, folks. So the first thing, and I'm craning my head sideways so I can read this. So data processing, hosting, and related services is the most exposed. The second is other information services. Okay. Third is publishing industries, except internet. I love the except internet here because that like is the kind of 
I work in tech. I'm not as exposed to this. Insurance carriers and related activities, credit intermediation and related activities, securities, commodity contracts, and other financial investments and related activities, professional, scientific, and technical services, lessers of nine financial intangible assets, except copyrighted works, broadcasting, except internet, monetary authorities, central bank, fund trusts, and other financial vehicles, wholesale electronic markets and agents and things, and then telecommunications. Okay, this is, there. there's, again, I think there's a thousand job, a thousand and nineteen different job categories in the ONET database, but already just in reading the description, and then they have this kind of coefficient of of of, of exposure, um, and and this is and this is as graded by GPT four. Already, this is setting off a little a lot of alarm bells. Um, so, given that insurance carriers are very exposed securities and exchange contracts other kinds of legal services emily these are a lot of the jobs that we've really been worried about you know talking about this kind of automation that you have things like legal contracts or you having things like insurance carriers doing any kind of adjustment to this and these are the things that are most exposed to automation just my like my alarm bells are just yeah, like just yeah. and, blaring at this point. And the exposure that we're worried about, to be very clear, is that somebody is going to decide that this is an okay thing to do. And then, you know, people who are trying to get their medical expenses reimbursed are going to be told, well, GPT-4 said that that's actually not eligible or whatever. Like that's mm -hmm. the, that's the exposure that we're worried about. I just want to say this yeah. except internet thing here might not be these authors. It might be that these are yeah. categories that are in that OSTARnet thing. Oh, look, there's two it, of these. Yeah, one's the GPT-4 grade and the other is the um, is the um, open AI, the human annotators. Human yeah. laborers, yeah. Yeah. All right. And I think uh, they have pretty high correlation between them, which well, is, which is yeah, which is why they're valid. They're, they're tra also trying to validate GPT-4 as as a valid human reader here, right? Yeah, we we need to we need to talk about their inter annotator agreement stuff, which is also nonsense. Um, yeah, and we'll we'll get to that. But I think we have to talk about their their methods and data collection in some Let's detail. So, yeah. um, section three point one: data on activities and tasks performed by occupation in the U.S. We use the OSTARnet twenty seven point two database. I don't know if it's ONET or OSTARnet, but whatever. I don't. I don't know. Yeah. Which contains information on 1,016 occupations, including their respected, respective detailed work activities and tasks. And I've got to say, first of all, that sounds like somebody sat down and tried to systematize something so that you could do studies of, um, you know, how people move through occupations or, you know, different kinds of things. So, you know, respect for attempting that, but also this is one of those, the map is not the territory things, yeah. right? So a DWA is a comprehensive action that is Part of completing task, ungrammatical, such as study scripts to determine project requirements. A task, on the other hand, is an occupation-specific unit of work that may be associated with zero, one, or multiple DWAs. We offer a sample of tasks and DWAs in table one. Um, so I was looking at these and, you know, task ID um, 4668.0, occupation title is gambling cage workers. 
-hmm. And the uh, detailed work activity is execute sales or other financial transactions. And the task description is cash checks and process credit card advances for patrons. And it's like, okay, yes. But when you've got a person who's standing there in the gambling cage, um, and they're doing these tasks, they are also probably keeping an eye out for people who are getting disruptive or like there's, right. there's a bunch of stuff they're doing in parallel. Um, the last two things here are educational tasks. So 6529, the occupation title is kindergarten teachers accept special education. And then 6568, elementary school teachers accept special education. And there's no DWA, it's just the hyphen. And then the That's task description. Yeah, isn't that weird? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why volunteers, that volunteers, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why that necessarily is. And they they say a little bit, and I'd love for any kind of like folks who are in the labor econ field to sort of get on because they're they're ONET itself, I think, is a separate database, but then they're also doing a mapping here to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the BLS. Um, and so what uh so it looks like what they're doing is that they the DWAs come from the BLS. Um, which it, for our non-American listeners is our um, is within is BLS do the BLS statistics come out through the Department of Labor or through Commerce? I forget. Um, if anyone knows, drop it in the chat. Uh, but they say we use the BLS recommended crosswalk to OSTARnet to link the OSTARnet task and the DWA data set to the BLS labor force demographics, which is derived from the co current population survey. Um, which I don't know if that's um, that's something that comes from census or not. Um, so both of these data sources are collected by the U.S. government and primarily capture workers who are not self-employed, are documented, and are working in the so-called formal economy. So that's also a pretty huge um, exclusion if you're talking about people who are not documented and are also not working in are not working in the informal economy. But like you know, you collect data, you know, you use the data that you have. You come to the you come to the labor econ. Uh, you know, fight with the uh, with the revolver you've got. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, they talk about then defining exposure. We present our results based on an exposure rubric in which we define exposure as a measure of whether access to an LLM or LLM powered system would reduce the time required for a human to perform a specific DWA or complete a task by at least 50%. Now, thinking back to kindergarten teachers, elementary school teachers, anybody who's doing caring work, um, you don't speed that up, right? Mm -hmm. a, a day at school is a day at school. If you, yeah. if you somehow did it in half a day, you haven't like increased productivity. You've just spent less time educating the kids. Like it doesn't, yeah. Know, yeah. doesn't make any and, sense. And I think a lot of the, and I think at the same time, I think in those big, and I don't, you know, I can't look at this automatically and we won't spare our viewers who are seeing this, that the absolutely tiny uh, chart in the, the iceberg plot in which um, uh, abstract Tesseract, Nick, Nick M said, Matplotlib was lib, live. How do you say? I, I looked this up. Matplotlib was like, I'm sorry, Dave, I'm afraid I can't do that. And yeah, it was just the the plot itself being, um, but probably is why it's an appendix. Um but yeah, basically some some of these things are really, you know, can't be automatizable. Okay, let's talk about this exposure rubric because I because it's kind of the same methodology that's in the Goldman paper. And I'd love to go to the Goldman paper too, because the claims yeah. are just as fantastical as this paper. So they say <clears throat> it's a little box here. So the summary summary of the exposure rubric. 
no exposure, E0 in parentheses, if using the described LLM results in no or minimal reduction in the time required to complete the activity or task while maintaining equivalent quality uh, with a uh, footnote here that says equivalent quality means that a third party, typically the recipient of the output, would not notice or care about LLM assistance. Okay. So we, we can get away with throwing synthetic text in here and no one's going to notice. Right, exactly. Saying. That's equivalent quality. Or using the described LLM results in a decrease in the quality of the activity task uh, or task output. So actually going to get worse as no exposure. That's interesting that it only goes positive and there's not a negative exposure. Anyways, direct exposure, E1, if using the described LLM via chat GPT or the OpenAI Playground, and, and I say this because I think they might have assessed via ChatGPT and GPT-4 prior to its integration in ChatGPT. Remember, this was released, this was written in March uh, 2023. Uh, can decrease can, can the time required to complete the DWA or task by at least half. So that's kind of partial exposure. And then LLM plus exposed, which sounds like um, some, you know, girls gone wild for chatbots um, or E2 access to the described <laughs> LLM. Sorry for that joke. Uh, I really apologize. Access to the described LLM alone would not reduce the time required to complete the activity task by at least half, but additional software could be developed on top of the LLM that could reduce the time it takes to complete the specific activity task with quality by at least half. Among these systems, we count access to image generation systems. And then there's another footnote. Uh, in practice, as can be seen in the full rubric in Appendix A.1, we categorize access to image capabilities separately, E3, to facilitate annotation, though we combine E2 and E3 for all analysis. That was so much to say. Emily, take it away. I need to catch my <laughs> all breath. Right. Yeah. So a couple of things in here. One is... I, and now I've lost the terminology for this, but when you're talking about data, there's there's like continuous data where yeah. like 1.5 is related to one in the same way that 2.5 is related to two. There's um, discrete buckets that are nonetheless ordered. And then there's just, you know, discrete buckets that do not stand in any ordering relationship to each other. And that's what this is. Like they make it look like E2 is somehow more than E1, but it's not. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, that's an issue here. Um, but so this is this is what they're trying to claim that they're measuring, and they're trying to come up with numbers or, or cat. Sorry, they're, they're trying to label each of those, I guess, tasks or DWAs mm -hmm. as E0, E1, E2, and then sort of saying, okay, well then this profession has this many of its tasks in these categories. Um, but um, okay, this gets fun. So just below that box, it says, we set the exposure threshold at a potential 50% reduction in time required to complete a specific DWA or task while maintaining consistent quality. Um, we anticipate that adoption will be highest and most immediate for applications that realize a considerable increase in productivity. Although this threshold is somewhat arbitrary, it was selected for ease of interpretation by annotators. Moreover, regardless of the chosen threshold, we guess that real-world reduction in task time would likely be slightly or significantly lower than our estimates, leading us to opt for a relatively high threshold. So basically, they're saying, we picked an arbitrary number to have people make a guess about, and we put it at 50% because that was maybe easier to pretend that they were accurately guessing. Like, I um, I don't, yeah. I don't know. Um, but then 
they have their table two, which is supposed to be showing us agreement. And they've got uh, three different sets of numbers here. So there's comparison between GPT-4 using rubric version one, which is the one in the paper, and human. Mm -hmm. GPT-4 rubric version two and human. And then GPT-4 using the two different rubrics. Problem number so agreement, one. agreement with itself. And with itself. This, these, these numbers aren't very good. So they've got, um, uh, what is this letter? Is this a lowercase? So you have alpha, beta, and then. Well, what's the one in the header here? Oh, the header, that that, a... that's a gamma, isn't it? That's a gamma, yeah. yeah. Was, is that a gamma? But is it the third one, a gamma too? Is it an uppercase? Oh, gosh. It's been so long. Know. I'm, I'm <laughs> sorry. We're not Please... physicists. Feel free, yeah. Feel free to dog me in the chat for not knowing my Greek letters. Um, so they got an alpha, beta, gamma, and then they have different weightings. The percent agreement between GPT four it kind of is is pretty is 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 above about sixty five. But then the Pearson coefficient is is pretty terrible just for E one between GPT four and human. It's but which is hold on, they're measuring nothing that makes any sense at all here. You say just for E one, and they've got two more lines, but. If you're talking about inter-annotator agreement or inter-rater mm. agreement, then yeah. you say, okay, for all the data, to what mm. extent did these two raters get the same answer? And then if you're doing it right, you're using a chance-corrected metric um, yeah. like Cohen's kappa right. for all of the data. They are looking at only the things that were labeled E1 or the things that were labeled E1 plus E2 with some weight. So they're combining yeah this like weighted score that they want to do and their agreement metric. But the agreement metric should have been just about the underlying data. That's and, right. and there's a huge omission here that uh, Jeremy has picked up in the chat. They didn't talk about inter-rater agreement among the people who were doing exactly. the real annotation. Right? Yeah. right. If you're not even, if you're not doing, yeah, if you're not even seeing how much you can agree between your different annotators, then you know how stable is that going to be once you start comparing it to GPT-4. Um, so failure on yeah. agreement <laughs> metrics, please go ahead and read a textbook on content analysis. Kirpendorf has a nice one from 2004. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, <laughs> go ahead. And Kirpendorf of Kirpendorf's alpha, right? Yeah, Which is, right. I think, in that same chance corrected space as, as Cohen's yeah, kappa. As Cohen's kappa, yeah. that's right, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, okay. We could. Oh my gosh. I think. I think uh, maybe I wonder, we should bump over should to Goldman Sachs move, move. here. Oh, yeah. No, hold on. Go. There's something that I yeah. have to do here. That they do have a limitations section. Um, so without reading this in great detail, they say subjective human judgments. Basically, we had people guess. That's a limitation. Measuring LLMs with GPT-4. Oh, they're going to recognize that it's a weakness to fabricate data. Well, not quite. Um, they say the outcomes. First of all, they they cite something else from OpenAI saying. Recent research indicates that GPT-4 serves as an effective discriminator capable of applying intricate taxonomies and responding to changes in wording and emphasis, which is just bullshit, right? Yeah. Um, they continue, the outcomes of GPT-4 task classification are sensitive to alternations in the rubric's wording, the prompts order and composition, the presence or absence of specific examples in the rubric, the level of detail provided, and the definitions given for key terms, which is a lot of words to say, it's all nonsense. It's not yeah. data. We've fabricated data, but here we're going to just sort of talk about how we didn't, we, we have to be sensitive to the fact that the fabricated data might come out slightly differently if we asked for it slightly differently. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And it's, and it's really, oof, yeah. And I mean, it's sort of the, um, yeah. And again, in the subjective human judgments, a paragraph before they say, 
In our study, we employ annotators who are familiar with LLM capabilities, aka people who work at OpenAI. And but then they they acknowledge. However, this group is not occupationally diverse. Yeah, no shit, Sherlock. Potentially, le- that's not in the paper, obviously. Potentially leading to biased judgments regarding LLM's reliability and effectiveness in performing tasks with unfamiliar occupations. You know, I would yeah. love a study that asked workers how well they thought these things could do their jobs. And I'm sure you yeah. would get quite different metrics. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, okay. So this is this is um, as Quarish is saying in the chat, absolutely unscientific. It is nonsense. Um, but guess what? It's not the only one. So our other artifact comes from Goldman Sachs Economics Research. Um, I like how this has not only a date but also a timestamp. So <laughs> March twenty sixth, twenty twenty three, at nine oh five p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Oh um, gosh. They yeah. <laughs> well, sorry for hey. them. You know. That also signals yeah. Goldman Sachs, probably not a great place to work if they're releasing reports at 9.05 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. I digress. <laughs> yeah, there's that. Okay, so this is, the title is uh, Global Economics Analyst. I guess that's the, mm, the heading that it comes under. And then the title is The Potentially Large Effects of Artificial Intelligence on Economic Growth, parentheses Briggs Kodnani, who are, I guess, two of the authors there's then four authors listed mm-hmm. um with incidentally their phone numbers um all right and so there's the this executive summary which we need to read because it's got lots of nonsense in it and then we can get into the methodological nonsense um how about i do the first one and then yeah, go for it you can pick an, okay uh yeah. the recent emergence of generative artificial intelligence parentheses ai raises whether we are on the brink of a rapid acceleration in task automation that will drive labor costs and raise productivity. Not quite grammatical. Uh, Despite significant uncertainty around the potential of generative AI, its ability to generate content that is indistinguishable from human-created output and to break down communication barriers between humans and machines reflects a major advancement with potentially large macroeconomic effects. So generate content that is indistinguishable from human-created output is not actually a good thing, right? Yeah. Um, and you were laughing before about how breakdown communication barriers between humans and machines is ridiculous, right? Um, yeah. As in, as as if machines have this kind of internal kind of mind, and we need, we just need to understand each other better, man. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so the next the next point says, if gener if generative AI delivers on its promised capabilities, the labor market could face significant disruption. Using data on occupational tasks in both the U.S. and Europe, we find that roughly two-thirds, two-thirds of current jobs are exposed to some degree of AI automation, and that generative AI could substitute up to one-fourth of current work. These are like, these are monumental cataclysmic sort of claims, and it's not very different from what what OpenAI said, in which they said 80% of jobs would be exposed with about 19% to be completely replaced. They continue, extrapolating our current estimates globally suggests that generative AI could expose the equivalent of 300 million full-time jobs to automation. Okay, so if you're taking, I don't know what, you know, how many people work in the formal economy worldwide, say it's, I don't know, two-thirds of, of, of how, what's the current global population? Eight, eight billion? Are we eight billion, eight? I think, yeah. Yeah, so that's, so that's about six. Um, so you're talking about six billion people. I mean, three hundred. What's what's the math? Three hundred million uh, of six—a pretty minuscule 
uh, kind of uh, percentage, I'd suppose. But uh, but given that they are extrapolating here from U.S. and Europe data to um, the global majority, that seems questionable. But uh, yeah, that's let's move on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and this is, I mean, the rest of this is sort of more of that hype um, on this page. Um, but I think we need to to get to their um, explanation of generative AI. So this is the yeah. Goldman Sachs folks telling their audience heading is generative AI explained. We first discuss the current state of AI development and its key capabilities. Exhibit one provides an overview of generative AI in comparison to its predecessor machine learning methods, sometimes referred to as narrow or analytical AI. In our assessment, the generative AI technologies currently in focus, such as ChatGPT, DALI, and Lambda, are distinguished by three main characteristics. One, their generalized rather than specialized use cases. Two, their ability to generate novel human-like output rather than merely describe or interpret existing information. And three, their approachable interfaces that both understand and respond with natural language, images, audio, and video. Um, this next paragraph has weird, uh, gratuitous shout out to Microsoft. So they talk about MS-DOS to Windows to Office. Those are examples. It's like there was other software companies in the meantime. But this graphic exhibit one is ridiculous. So they have step one, training data to neural network. Step two, neural network to AI output. Step three, AI output to human interface. And step four, applications. And then in each of these boxes, there's previous ML methods, uh, contrasted with generative AI. And at each point, it's just like, yes, people were using machine learning, you know, somewhat problematically, but at least sensibly, uh, you know, yeah. like with a with sort of a, a defined purpose. And now we pretend we have magic. So in the first box, previous ML methods, data trained on specialized databases for specific purposes, e.g. make statistical predictions about election results, answer questions about bio biomedical literature, et cetera. Um, yeah, so data trained on specialized databases for specific purposes sounds like the first step to a reasonable application of machine learning, Yeah. right? Contrast that with generative AI, data trained on large generalized databases, i.e. the entire internet, put a pin on that, thus one, wider range of use cases, and two, more easily able to spawn complementary innovations with specialized use cases, in parentheses and quotes, deepening of AI. I just want to say probably again on this podcast, if somebody says that ChatGPT or anything else is trained on the entire internet, you immediately know they do not know what they're talking about because the yep, internet yep. is not something you can go and download. Yes. Um, so huge yeah. red flag there. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't get any better in the rest of these boxes. Is there any of them that you want to dig into, Alex? It's it's all bad. But, you know, the the, ne the next one, I mean, the ne step two is, is pretty bad. I want to highlight that. And then I want to, like, really get into some of the really ridiculous graphs here because mm -hmm. they because graph uh, there's one graph in here which is the most uh uninterpretable graph i think i've seen in in probably a few years uh but the second box here step two neural network to ai output and it says previous ml methods models generate statistical predictions based on relationships and training data okay generative ai models seek to generate new information that is indistinguishable from human data Oof, okay. Achieved via the introduction of a second discriminative, and this is in quotes, neural network, which evaluates the output of the primary, quote, generative neural network for authenticity relative to human output. What the, like, this is, yeah. to me, I, 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 if you've seen that um, Breaking Bad meme where, like, um, 
like Jesse says something really indis- like ridiculous and out of context, my response is Brian Cranston going, what the fuck are you talking about, Jesse? Uh, because I have no idea what they're saying by talking about two different neural networks that operate in this ways. And then they completely you know, misuse a term by saying, quote, this adversarial neural networks approach forces the generative network to revise its output and learn to consistently fool the discriminative network. network. So what I think they're describing here is reinforcement learning with human feedback, but it's like worst description I've ever seen. Actually, I don't think so. I think this is the GAN no. stuff that was used for image generation. And is it's it? not to my knowledge. Yeah. So you had you had one thing that was making an image and then the other thing I had to decide if it was hu- an, an actually occurring human captured oh, image or something. Yeah. Right. And so, yes, a lot of the sort of progress in making these photorealistic images came through this GAN training setup. Yeah. But that's not there in the LLMs. And yeah, you're you're thinking it's yeah. maybe a bit like the RHLF, um, nope, RLHF uh, segment yeah. in ChatGPT, but it, it's it's not, right? Like it's yeah. It's, yeah. It's, 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 yeah. it's really, yeah. All right. I'd love yeah. to go down to exhibit the, three, which is their one of their things. There's there's one. a <laughs> there's a lot bad in this paper. And it 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 received absolutely no criticism in the press. I found it actually quite hard to even find this paper, which was only linked, like I could find, not from the Goldman Sachs fight, but from this weird Italian uh, key4biz.it from some WordPress site. Anyhow, most of the <laughs> most of the most of the business press didn't even link to the paper. Really weird stuff. Anyways, exhibit three is management teams are increasingly focused on opportunities from AI on corporate earning calls. And more mentions of AI predict higher um, capital expenditure or CapEx. And so basically the first one is this mentions of AI and calls. Uh, and so not surprising. They're mentioning it more. Hype seems to you know, make your investors happy, right? But then the second panel of this graph is like is not interpretable. So the x-axis is a logged mentions of AI on 2019 to 2022 earnings calls. So in 10 plus mentions of AI. And then the y-axis is cumulative change in corporate uh capital expenditures and it's and it's and it's not and then and I think they're just doing a cross section here and then there's a size of the bubble which it goes completely undefined and then in the actual graph they've got um an average of the S&P 500 companies which is around 50 cumulative change in corporate expenditures. And then there's a trend line, and then they write out the coefficients for the line. And then the R squared just turns out to turns out to be point, point 0.12, which one is not very big. And like, what the hell is happening in this graph? If I got this in an undergraduate methods assignment, I'd go, what, what are you even showing here? Yeah. And that line in the middle. So the average for S&P 500 companies with less than 10 mentions of AI is basically the average for the companies that are not represented on this graph because this is only the ones that have more than 10. Yeah. And it's kind of right right in the middle also. Yeah. And also I probably, they probably drop then everything that's less than 10 just because it would probably would completely flatten this trend line as well. So Yeah. yeah, absolutely nonsense. 
And then the last thing I'd love to highlight, I know we, we still need to get into to hell, uh, <laughs> is this is this is this thing where they actually get into the jobs. You know, I, I find it helpful to always get into the jobs and see what what the hell they're talking about. So exhibit five or um, here. Uh, sorry. Uh, yeah. So these are the jobs that could be completely automated here. So um, so the first one in the U.S., is and I'm assuming they're using um, kind of an, a mapping of O star net to BLS or or uh, um, or um, um, uh, or some kind of um, mesh of the two. So the first one is office and administrative support. Forty six percent of the jobs legal. Forty four percent of the jobs again legal. Architecture and engineering. Thirty seven percent of the jobs. Now this one is funny. 36% of life, physical, and social science jobs could be automated. And as a social scientist, I'm like, really? Okay, that's 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 really interesting that you say such a thing. Uh, 35% Do they mean of, jobs like one person's work entirely automated, so you have three people working instead of four? Is that the is that what I, they're saying here? Think of think of three social scientists. Think of if you're a social scientist in the audience, think of two of your friends. Which one of you is <laughs> going to be automated? Um, yeah, but then it just gets into you know, then there's community and social service jobs, which is fascinating, and then management, which is also actually quite funny um, because I think um, I think there was a tweet a few weeks ago uh, in which they said, "Why are we thinking about automating CEO jobs? Seems like they don't actually do much, and maybe maybe it'd be most most up for that." But I just find this kind of these kind of general buckets to be both big and surprising. Yeah, I, I think we should talk about their methodology because they did not, it appears, ask GPT three or four. Um, mm -hmm. But what they did instead was they basically took a classification of um, tasks by difficulty from that same ONET thing where there's apparently a scale of difficulty. So someone else has gone through and rated these things on difficulty and basically just said, we are going to assume that anything up to difficulty level four can be automated. And then we're going to run yeah. these numbers based on that. So right. it's also fake data yeah. um, where the there's no basis for the claim that whatever this rating scale was of difficulty relates to automatability. They're just making the assumption. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And there's such, such interesting things here, like, um, things that would be in context, not really something that you could go and give to an LLM, for instance, interpreting the meaning, uh, of information for others. And then in the right column, the easiest task would be interpret a blood pressure reading. Okay. Yeah. I can interpret a blood pressure reading if it's probably, uh, north of a hundred, you're probably doing decent. If it's um, if it's if it's higher than than one sixty, you probably got a problem. Uh, but the people who are doing that in context are EMTs, nurses, doctors, medical staff. Uh, they're not going to go to their Chat GPT calculator and put it in, and that's not going to make their job any easier because they're pretty easy metrics there. Why do you need an LLM for this? You don't. Why are you going to introduce it into that, especially for frontline workers? You're not going to. Yeah. Oh, and then I'm looking at this last one here. So um, the AI exposed work activity column 
Uh, the value is performing administrative activities, and then the examples of tasks by difficulty, difficulty four, so automatable according to this assumption, complete tax forms for a small business. Like if you care about the accuracy, and presumably you care about the accuracy of your tax forms, you do not want the synthetic tax extruding machine in there doing it for you. There's amazing right, ones here. There's this yeah. great. I just I want to just read one. One is check to see okay. if baking bread is done. Really? <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna just I'm gonna hey, if you can put an LLM in a in a baking thermometer or whatever, I don't know how to baker. I don't know how baking works. Uh, but like then then go ahead. Anyways, yeah. Let's yeah. let's move on. All right. All right. I gotta give you a prompt. Do you want musical or not musical this time, Alex? Hey, let's go for musical. Okay. So somebody in the chat just said something plot twist. This is abstract abstract. The difficulty scale is the same one they use for the songs in Dance Dance Revolution. So a DDR oh, no. style song with lyrics about the difficulty of job tasks. Oh my gosh. All right. I have to think about this. All right. This is my cover of Can't Stop Falling in Love. Um, I, I played a lot of DDR in my youth. It's like my life was empty with you before that you came along. Da, 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 da. But then I got an LLM to check if my bread was done. Sometimes I really want to be sure that it is proved. But now I know with this large language model that it's ready to peruse. Can't stop eating my bread and using an LLM. Can't stop. Uh, I can't think of how to finish that. Yeah. Oh, but I... <laughs> that's the best one yet, Alex. <laughs> thank you. I, I thank you for mentioning Dance Dance Revolution. My wealth of 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 playing that in the basement of the student union at Purdue is paying off. <laughs> All right. <laughs> can't stop eating my LLM bread. Okay. <laughs> we have we have six things here under Fresh AI Hell. I really want to get to them. The first yeah. one I picked because it's it's uh, seems very relevant to this week's topic. So this is from ZDNet. Um, and uh, the category is home slash tech slash services and software. Headline, create an ebook using AI for $35. Using a subhead, using ChatGPT, my AI ebook creation pro helps you write an entire ebook with just three clicks, no writing or technical experience required. Oh, gosh. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because yeah. because we, we write just, you know, just to, you know, just to create ebooks, you know. No thoughts, right. brain empty. Exactly. And yeah. and I wish I knew who said this, but I heard from somebody like, if you couldn't be bothered to write it, why should I be bothered to read it? Like, yeah. this is that. Okay, next. Yeah. Um, I've got something on X. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so this is this is one, this is a post by Reed uh, Southern, who's a visual artist um, and has been very vocal against AI. So he writes, Duolingo laid off a huge percentage of their contract translators, and the remaining ones are simply reviewing AI translations to make sure they're, quote, acceptable. This is the world we're creating, removing the humanity from how we learn to connect with humanity. So just like nightmare material, like even if you're doing Duolingo uh, and you're trying to learn a different language, you don't even know if the translations are correct or not. Ugh. Yeah. And it's like also, again, this was interesting work apparently for a pretty broad range of contractors. And now they've yeah. all just been said, you're redundant because we can make a fake version of this that the people trying to learn this are not in a position to tell the difference. So we're yeah. going to get away with it. Um, the next one is another tweet on the a quote tweet of that one. 
um, from Dean Tane. Um, it's not just the translations, it's the voice recordings. The Irish Duolingo course a few months ago switched to AI-generated voices that has pronunciation all over the place, and in many cases makes up entirely new sounds that don't exist in any Irish dialect. It's terrible. So there was a follow-up on there was a follow-up on this. Was this uh, that was pretty interesting? It might be the second mm. uh, tweet in this where it's yeah, it's this one. So Duolingo mm. loves to pride itself in having more people and having more people learning Irish than there are Irish speakers in the world. Uh, and then they say, we see this fact all the time when the app is loading. But this, if this is what they're doing now, they are already causing untold damage to the language. Um, it would be like the American kid who wrote the vast majority of the Scots Wikipedia with no knowledge of the language and just made everything up, but much worse. And it reminds me of some of the kind of work in language revitalization, which I'm sure you can speak a lot more to, mm -hmm. Emily, but kind of like people like... Um, uh, there was this one professor who's revitalizing uh, Native Hawaiian and the way that, you know, there was establishment of certain schools for that. But imagine if, I think Hawaiian might even be a language on Duolingo, but imagine mm -hmm. that you're just kind of mangling the language via AI translations. I'm, I mean, you're not going to preserve that language. You're going to do irrevocable damage to it. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's already, so the folks at Tehiku Media in Aotearoa, New Zealand are big on like, this is our community's data. We should decide what happens with it and we should benefit from it if there's if it's being used in a way that's generating benefits and you know financial or otherwise. And this is like not not only are we going to stop employing anybody who speaks this language, we're just going to just you know keep reusing that data to to make money while creating a product that's worse but the people who are using the product can't tell or so they hope. Very sad. Yeah. Okay, this next one is something from my own institution that I've just wanted to rant about a little bit um, on the pod for a while. Now, this came from the office of the Proto provost um, at the very end of last year, um, at Provost Tricia Serio. Um, Dear colleagues, as this year draws to a close and I reflect on my first quarter as provost, I am inspired by and grateful for your contributions to the University of Washington's Michigan, sorry, mission to preserve, advance, and disseminate knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then there's this paragraph a little bit further down. Um, I am looking forward to the new year and new quarter and the promise they hold. Is that the part that I'm looking for? Hold on. Um, is this... Is this the right one? I'm looking for some GPT stuff. Yeah, yeah no, it's not GPT. It's um, so they there's a bunch of stuff in there about how great it is that uh, faculty, staff, and students come together to create art and literature, conceptualize performances, reveal discoveries, and develop technologies, right? All the stuff that we're doing at the university. And then in this penultimate paragraph, I hope you'll join me at the Provost Town Hall in February, more details to follow soon, when I will discuss the state of the university from the academic perspective and highlight some of the ways faculty and staff are leveraging artificial intelligence to transform their research, innovation, teaching, and impact. And I just felt so let down. Like, just, uh. I mean, maybe, maybe, um, maybe Provost Saria will invite you to be <laughs> on the on, on the, in this town hall. Maybe, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, usually, yeah. it's my colleagues in computer science who get invited to these things, not me. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. So this is Go on, for this one, yeah. on on on. Is this Blue Sky? Uh, yes. Yeah. So this is Dr. Damien P. Williams saying. Uh, and and so this is um uh, uh quote tweeting uh um or quote posting quote I don't know what you call it uh Nash who says speaking of enshittification shout out to Corey Doctorow um Microsoft has gone so balls deep on AI in quotes they're forcing keyboard manufacturers to add a new key to open their shitty quote AI function in Windows meanwhile users are either not using it or trying to get it off their computers 
And then uh, Dr. Williams is saying, yeah, Microsoft spent too much dollars on AI hype without real robust use cases before seeing what the public could or would actually do with it. And now, rather than admit they were very, very wrong to do so, they are literally they're trying to literally literally manufacture consent via a whole new keyboard form factor, which yikes. Yeah. Yikes and it's, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Moving on. And then Last to one. take us take us out of AI hell, um, I have some comic relief here. Uh, this is a Tumblr post by someone named D. Dwayne. Um, sorry, reblogging something from uh, an account called Fuck Customers. Um, and they are <laughs> sorry, <laughs> just a very funny Twitter name. <laughs> yeah. Tumblr name, not Twitter. Um, yeah, so sorry. the thing says half rant, half story. I'm a physicist. I work for a company that helps develop car parts. Essentially, car companies come to us with ideas on what they want from a part or material, and we make slash test the idea or help them make slash test it. Usually, this means talking to other scientists and engineers and experts, and it's all fine. Sometimes, this means talking to business people and board execs, and I hate them. A bit ago, when AI was really taking off in the zeitgeist, I went to a meeting to talk about some tweaks car company A wanted to make to their hydraulics, specifically the master cylinder, but it doesn't super matter. I thought I'd be talking to their engineers. It ends up just being me, their head supervisor, who was not a scientist slash engineer, and one of their executives from a different area, also not a scientist slash engineer. I'm the only one in the room who actually knows how a car works and also the lowest level employee and also aware that these people will give feedback to my boss based on how I, quote, represent the company whilst I'm here. I start to explain my way through how I can make some changes they want, trying to do so in a way they'll understand, when head supervisor cuts me off and starts talking about AI. I'm like, oh, well, AI is often integrated into the software for a car, but we're talking hardware right now. So that's not something we can really, can you add artificial intelligence to the hydraulics? Sorry, what was that? <laughs> can you add AI to the hydraulic system? Can I fucking what, mate? Sir, I'm sorry. I'm a little confused. What do you mean by adding AI to the hydraulics? I just thought this stuff could run smoother if you added AI to it. Most things do. Oh my gosh. It goes, it goes on. It just um, goes on. Yeah. That's 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 incredible. I just ugh, yeah. I it's the kind of magic sheen on all of this. And it's just absolutely infuriating. I mean, it would be like if you asked a system to generate, let's say, a new engine design, uh, like could you, it would probably blow up you know, right away, given that these are combustible yeah. systems. Um, and my Lord, like the kind of, you know, and I think it's just the kind of thing that's happened to all kind of management. Uh, yeah. Uh, just, I just, I just can't, my brain, it's I'm just not much. computing right so here. I have to like, just underscore this last little bit here. So he was, this is from that same post. He was seriously asking, I've met my fair share of idiots, but I was sure he wasn't genuinely seriously asking that I add AI directly to a piston system, but he was. And not even in the like, oh, if we implemented a way for AI to control that part kind of way, he just vaguely thought that AI would make it better. <laughs> yeah. So, so just rub on, rub on some AI. Just amazing. Yeah. 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 Medusa skirt yeah. saying... Can you add an AI to the spring to calculate the Boltzmann constant in real time? And I'm like, Ugh, oh my gosh. I mean, clearly pistons have a job that is definitely exposed to LLMs and they're going to either increase their productivity or lose their jobs in the near future, right? Hey, how hard is it to actually calculate whether, you know, an engine will explode or not? It can't be that hard, right? Let's ask GPT-4. Let's do it, y'all. Uh, all right. I think we're we're heading out. 
that was a fun one. But yeah, these are this is cathartic. Those are papers I've been wanting to go after for a while. So that's it for this week. Our theme song is by Toby Menon, graphic design by Naomi Pleasure Park, production by Christy Taylor, and thanks, as always, to the Distributed AI Research Institute. If you like this show, you can support us by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and by donating to DARE at dareinstitute.org. That's D-A-I-R hyphen institute.org. Find us in all our past episodes on PeerTube and wherever you get your podcasts. You can watch and comment on the show while it's happening live on our Twitch stream. That's twitch.tv slash dare underscore institute. Again, that's D-A-I-R underscore institute. I'm Emily Ann Bender. And I'm Alex Hanna. Stay out of AI hell, y'all. <laughs>